Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to, we're going to do verses 19 through 28 today. The title of this lesson could be The Testimony of John the Baptist to the Sanhedrin, or to the delegation, the commission from the Sanhedrin to him as he was preaching in the wilderness. There are no parallel passages in the other Gospels here, so it's just John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28 that we will consider today. Now, last audio, we talked about John's famous prologue, where he says that Jesus is the Logos, the Word of God, all the Trinitarian verses, all the verses about Jesus' life as God before he came to the earth. And now we're going to talk about, we're going to jump right into the middle of John the Baptist's ministry. Here's what, we, here's what John skipped. Chronologically, he skipped the genealogies of Jesus, the Annunciation to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist, the Annunciation to Mary about the birth of Jesus, Mary's Magnificat, the birth and childhood of Jesus, the Christmas story, the, excuse me, let me back up, the birth and childhood of John the Baptist, the Annunciation to Jesus that Jesus was going to be born, the birth of Jesus, the, which is the Christmas story, the childhood of Jesus as he was growing up for about 18 years or so in Nazareth, the beginning of the John the Baptist ministry. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the three temptations of Jesus. All of this has already happened, and now we jump back into the middle of John the Baptist's ministry here. So let's start with verse 19, John chapter 1. This is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? Now, let's take care of the preliminary problem of who these guys were, these Jews that came from Jerusalem. It says priests and Levites. Of course, priest is of the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. They're the ones that had official charge of the sacrifices in the temple. The Levites did secondary temple duties. They were of the tribe of Levi, but not of the family of Aaron. And they did things such as sing and clean the temple and guard the temple and so forth. And we'll see later. They also taught a little bit, too. So the priests and Levites were very familiar with. Now, Robertson labels this as a commission from the Sanhedrin. It doesn't actually say the Sanhedrin, but we can assume from, from inference, as we'll go through here, we'll see this had to be the Sanhedrin that sent these guys out. We'll also see in a ver later verse that it was the Pharisees who were the driving force behind this little delegation sent to John the Baptist. So, and the Pharisees, of course, were a school of thought. You could be a... I suppose you could be a priest and a Pharisee and a Levite and a Pharisee, too, because it's just a school of thought. Usually they weren't, though. Usually they were separate uh, people, and many of them were scribes who were official or private officials who did notaries and were secretaries and, and wrote down the law and that kind of thing. So, oh, there's so many categories of people in Jerusalem at that time that they run together a lot, so... It's hard to disentangle them. doesn't really matter. Let's just say that this was an official delegation of the Jews coming to John the Baptist and saying, Who are you? Now, John calls them the Jews. Now, I'm going to talk about this word Jews a little bit. It's used about 70 times in the Gospel of John. Sometimes the word is used favorably, sometimes it's used neutrally, and sometimes it's used unfavorably. I'm going to go through and make a, a point that I'm going to emphasize over and over again. First of all, 
when the word is used favorably. John 4.22, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now that's an extremely positive use of the, of the term Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. How could you be more positive than that? And you say, well, Dan, so what? Well, it's necessary to point this out because too many people make the absurd claim that Christianity is anti-Semitic. No, it is not anti-Semitic. Jesus was a Jew. All of his apostles were Jews. Come on. Sometimes the word Jew in the Gospel of John is used neutrally. Here's an example in John chapter 2, verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. In other words, the purifications that belong to the Jews. Well, it's used in a neutral term. It's not a bad term. This is necessary to point out that the word is used neutrally. Why? Because too many people make the absurd claim that Christianity is anti-Semitic. It is not anti-Semitic. The word Jew is just used in a... I've just shown you two examples where the word Jew is used in a positive and a negative sense. A neutral sense, excuse me, neutral sense. No anti-Semite uses Jew in a positive or a neutral sense. Now, there are many unfavorable uh, mentions of the word Jew or usages of the word Jew, and this is where people get the idea that Christianity is, is anti-Semitic, but they forget one important thing. When the gospel writers use the word Jew in a negative sense, they're not talking about all Jews. They're talking about the Jewish leaders, the aforesaid Pharisees and Sadducees and Levites and priests and all those guys who tried to kill Jesus. Well, yeah. But that's not talking about all Jews. It's not talking about Jews in general. Neither during Jesus' time was it talking about that, about Jews in general, nor in succeeding ages. Why do I make this point? Because too many people make the absurd claim that Christianity is anti-Semitic. I hope you do not even are not even tempted by such a thought. Now, why do we say it's the Sanhedrin that sent this delegation of priests and Levites out when John Gill says it was the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, the one that sat at Jerusalem, because it was their job to sniff out false prophets and false messiahs. And John the Baptist is doing messiah-like things, baptizing people. Now, the fact that the Sanhedrin sent a delegation so august, august, I should guess I should say, and from so far away, this did John a great honor, according to John Gill. I guess it was a great honor to be investigated by the religious authorities. Jerusalem was a day's journey from the Jordan, and John the Baptist was beyond the Jordan. And of course, according to D.A. Carson, it wasn't Bethany beyond the Jordan, just four or five miles across the river, a day's journey across the Jordan River. It was all the way up in Batania, which was way up north, to the east of the Sea of Galilee in the Old Testament province of Old Testament area of Bashan. The Roman province was called Batania, and that was a long way away to send a delegation. I don't know if Carson's right or not about that. That's controversial. But at any rate, the fact that the religious authorities sent a delegation so far to find out about John the Baptist, they knew something big was going on. Now, you might wonder why this delegation consisted partially of Levites, Levites are not known for being concerned about teaching type things. They're known for policing the temple, taking care of the money, accounting for the money, taking care of temple repairs, washing the pots and pans. You know, the, the, the nitty-gritty, grubby 
duties that have to be done to run a temple. That's what they're known for. But they also had teaching duties. If we'll look at the scriptures here at Second Chronicles 35, 3, he said to the Levites who taught all Israel the holy things of the Lord, put the holy ark in the temple. Don't carry it on your shoulders. He, I think this is the he is referring to Moses, he said to the Levites who taught all Israel. So the Levites are teaching all Israel about how to handle the ark. Nehemiah 8, 7 through 9. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbethai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people. All these people whose names I probably mispronounced. They were Levites, and they explained the law to the people. They, verse 8, Nehemiah 8, they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Well, there's a teacher for you right there. Verse 9, Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. The Levites were teachings there, obviously. So the Levites did have a teaching ministry. Interesting little point that I was not really aware of. So now we go to verse 20 in chapter 1 of John. He, John the Baptist, did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. Now that I there is... In the Greek, the emphatic form of the word for I, according to my NIV study Bible. That gave a, very, a much stronger contrast with Jesus. In other words, if I can paraphrase it, he didn't just say, I'm not the Messiah. He said, I personally am not the Messiah. So emphasized it. Because, and why did he have to do that? Because they were thinking he was claiming to be the Messiah. He had to make sure, hey, hey, guys, I'm not claiming to be the Messiah. Now, you might have thought that John the Baptist was being a little cowardly there. Well, you know, he's trying to protect himself because he, he doesn't want to be falsely accused of being the Messiah. I point out to you, he got himself killed anyway by not being the Messiah, just by being the forerunner. So that didn't really, I don't think that entered into his mind. He just wanted to make sure these people understood he was not the Messiah. He uses that, John uses that emphatic form of the Greek word for I, throughout the following verses that we're going to be talking about. He uses it frequently, not always. He almost invariably contrasts John the, himself, John the Baptist, as inferior to Jesus all the way through this passage. And as I said, John the Baptist had to be very clear that he was not the Messiah. He was doing Messiah-like things, and that could lead to misunderstandings. John chapter 1, verse 21 what then, they asked him, that's the priest, the Levites, the, little, the delegation for the Sanhedrin. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said, John the Baptist said. Are you the prophet? No, he, John the Baptist, answered. Now, why did the Jews ask, was John the Baptist, the Elijah, was Elijah? Well, first of all, Elijah had not died. They might have thought he had come back. Second Kings 2.11, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. Now, it was commonly believed by the Jews that Elijah would come back to earth and announce the end time, the end of the age, which means the establishment of the Jewish Messianic age. They thought Elijah would come back and establish that, Matthew 17.10. So the disciples questioned him, questioned Jesus. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first. So that's why they asked about Elijah. Now the interesting thing is, is that John the Baptist 
answered correctly if you take Elijah literally, because he was not Elijah literally. He was not numerically identical with Elijah. He was a different person. I, are you Elijah? They asked him, and he said, I am not. He was right. But ironically, in the antitypical sense, in the sense of fulfilling prophecy, he was Elijah. If we read in Luke 1.17, we read this. And he will go before him, he, that's John the Baptist, will go before, or the, or the, yes, John the Baptist will go before him in the spirit, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. This is an angel speaking this. Of, about John the Baptist. So he's going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. Spiritually, not literally. Figuratively, not literally. Matthew eleven fourteen. if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Talking about John the Baptist in Malachi 4, 5, this is the famous prophecy. Malachi says this, or God says this, Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So John the Baptist actually could have said, yeah, I'm Elijah and I'm fulfilling prophecy. I suspect he didn't do that because they would have been upset with him and that might have squelched God's plan of John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. They had three and a half years of ministry to go yet and not the time to get in trouble with the Jewish religious authorities. Well, after he, John the Baptist said he wasn't Elijah, they asked him, are you the prophet? No, he answered. All right, who is the prophet they're referring to? They're ref the, the commission from the Sanhedrin was referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18, which are two verses which I think everybody should really need to learn because it comes up a lot in the Gospels. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses, from among your own brethren. You must listen to him. Moses is talking about the Messiah here. Deuteronomy 18:18 I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your from their brothers I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him So Moses is prophesying of the Messiah when he talks about the prophet or a prophet to come later and the Jews somehow got the idea some of them that the prophet was not really the Messiah himself but it was someone who accompanied the, the Messiah so the NIV Study Bible says the Jews expected a variety of persons to be associated with the coming of the Messiah. Adam Clark says they misinterpreted Moses. They didn't realize the prophet was the Messiah himself, not somebody who accompanied the Messiah. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that only some of the Jews made this mistake. Some of them understood that he was the Messiah. They, so the Jews seem to have disagreed about whether the prophet was the Messiah or whether it was somebody that, comes, that accompanied the Messiah. And so there was confusion on that point. But at any rate, John the Baptist makes it clear. It doesn't make any difference. No, he says, I'm not the prophet. I'm not somebody. I'm not, he, he's, John the Baptist is saying, I'm not the prophet in the sense of I'm not the Messiah. Now, he was somebody who accompanied the Messiah. So, but he didn't, but to shut down any Jewish misconception, any pharisaical misconception about who he was claiming to be, he just said, no, I'm not the prophet. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes an interesting point, and they say that John the Baptist's answers are becoming progressively more terse. He starts out, when he's asked if he's Elijah, he says, of, excuse me, when he was asked if he was the Messiah, in verse 20, he says, I am not the Messiah. Five words. 
Then they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not. Three words. And then, he, then they said, are you the prophet? No. One word. Well, I don't know what you can get from that, but the NIV Study Bible says that the Jews kept asking John the Baptist about himself instead of about Jesus, and John the Baptist was getting a little bit ticked off about it. So he's getting a little bit short with them. Interesting speculation. Chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 of John. Starting with 22. Who are you then, they asked. They, the Levites and the priests, the commission. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And that, of course, would be the Sanhedrin. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the Isaiah the prophet said. So now John the Baptist, while not claiming to be the Messiah, he did claim he was the fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah the prophet was a big Big, big, big deal to the Jews. John the Baptist is referring to Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. This was fulfilled in Matthew 3, 3 and Mark 1, 4 and 5, which talks about John the Baptist's ministry a little bit before where we are here in John. Matthew 3, Three, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, 4 through 5. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flooding to him, flocking to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So John confesses that he's a fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet. We go to verses 24 and 25 in John chapter 1. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. This is the Levites and the priests. And we see here that the Pharisees were the driving force behind this little delegation. It doesn't say the Sanhedrin, but we can assume that the Sanhedrin, because they were the official big shots, they had the right to investigate who's the Messiah and who's not the Messiah. The instigation behind this delegation, though, was from the Pharisees. So this delegation had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? Now, it was logical that the Pharisees would have been behind that delegation. They were the conservative religious delegation. They probed deeper than the rest of the delegation. The rest of them just asked, the, the bald question, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? But the Pharisees went further, and they said, well, no, wait a minute. If you're not one of these three guys, then why are you baptizing? Now, what's the implications of somebody baptizing? John Gill says, in other words, John Gill says, John the Baptist, why are you baptizing and thus introducing a new rite into Judaism? And you're doing it without the say-so of the religious authorities. The veiled threat was that John could be condemned by the Sanhedrin. Now, why is that? Let's look and see what Adam Clark says. And I quote, Baptism was a very common ceremony among the Jews, who never received a proselyte into the full enjoyment of a Jew's privileges till he was both baptized and circumcised. But such baptisms were never performed except by an ordinance of the Sanhedrin or in the presence of three magistrates. Besides, they never baptized any Jew or Jewess, nor even those who were the children of their proselytes. For as all these were considered as born in the covenant, they had no need of baptism, which was used only as an introductory rite. 
Now, as John had, in this respect, altered the common customs so very essentially, admitting to his baptism the Jews in general, not just proselytes, but the Jews in general, the Sanhedrin took it for granted that no man had authority to make such changes unless especially commissioned from on high. Now, what Clark is saying is, you don't baptize proselytes. You, excuse me, you don't baptize Jews. People already are Jews. They don't need to be baptized. So why are you, John, out here baptizing Jews. They're already Jews. They don't need to be baptized. Well, see, John didn't care whether they were Jews. He didn't care about their race. He cared about the state of their heart, and they needed repentance, and that's why he was baptizing. But because he was baptizing people who were already Jews instead of mere proselytes, the Sanhedrin starts thinking, wait, man, either this guy must be the Messiah to, be over, to overcome our religious rules and traditions. So maybe he's the Messiah. So at any rate, somehow the Jews had gotten into their head, as John Gill says, they had gotten into the idea is that the expected Messiah, or those coming with the Messiah, were to baptize. It never says that anywhere in the scriptures, but they had got it in their head somehow, probably through their traditions. Now where they got the idea is not easy to say, John Gill says. Here's some possibilities. Zechariah 13.1. On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Well, that sounds like that. That fountain could be baptism and baptism done by the Messiah. That's reasonable, I guess. That's a quote from Grotius, the famous Protestant international law expert. I forgot his dates. I think it's 17th century, 16th century. I forgot, 16th, 17th century. Famous guy. But that's reasonable that they got the idea that from there. Ezekiel 36:25. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. So it is possible that the Jews got the idea from reading the Old Testament. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But at any rate, when they saw John baptizing, they're thinking, oop, this is the Messiah, or somebody who claims to be the Messiah. He's either the true Messiah, or he's the false Messiah. And by golly, we're going to find out. We go to verses 26 and 27 of John chapter 1. I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. Now, of course, John is referring to the Messiah, Jesus, who's coming after him. And, of course, that means after him in ministry, not after him in being. Jesus was in being from all eternity. Uh, and, he, and he was born after uh, John the Baptist, but... Uh, in in birth order, but what he's really talking about here is coming after me in ministry, and he's going to show up. And when you're going to look at him, you're going to see somebody who is the Messiah. That's what he's he's hinting at when he says, "Who sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie." What he's saying is, "Yeah, I, I might be fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, but boy, there's somebody coming after me. He's even bigger than me." And I guess the implication is he's going to be the Messiah because he's bigger than me. All right, let's take up a few loose ends of this verse. First of all, I baptize with water, verse 26 says. The NIV margin has, I baptize in water. Well, now, if you baptize in water, that means you're dunking somebody. You're immersing him. You're a Baptist. After all, John the Baptist is called John the Baptist. That doesn't mean he was a Southern Baptist, but it does mean he was baptizing in water, according to the NIV margin. Well, of course, that leads to all sorts of delicious controversies, especially between... Reformed Baptist and Presbyterians. Reformed and Reformed Baptist. Now, I just heard a story two days ago in church about a woman who met her husband on the Reformed pubcast. 
beer and cigars through Monday and Saturday, but Sunday's the day off. Of course, they've got to keep Sunday's the day off because, we'll see, we're still under the Old Testament law of the Sabbath. So that Reformed pubcast degenerated, this sister told me, because people were screaming and hollering nasty things at each other, especially about baptism. So a lot of people pulled out of the Reformed pubcast and started another Facebook group called the Five Pints of Calvinism. Ho, ho, ho. The Five Pints of Calvinism. And they could talk about anything they wanted, but not about baptism. Well, you know, that's absurd. It's absurd. You know, I am a Calvinist. I believe in all the tulip points with no problem. Have all my life. But I've also seen Calvinists, and I tell you, they have a congenital weakness, is they will fight over the stupidest things, and they will fight to the death. Look at Augustus Toplady, for example. <laughs> it's just not worth it, folks. If you want to sprinkle your babies, you're not doing it right, but hey, go sprinkle them. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to fight you over it. I'm going to ignore you, but I'm not going to come up there and, and, and make an enemy out of you. That's just absurd. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's a rabbit trail. I baptize in water, John answered them. Then he says, someone stands among you. You don't know him. He's talking about Jesus. Now, there's a problem here because Jesus didn't show up till the next day. We know that by reading verse 29 and a couple of verses. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that problem? Well, it's very simple. Jesus was then in being. Someone stands among you. In other words, somebody exists. And he's dwelling somewhere among them, somewhere, not necessarily right in front of John the Baptist, but somewhere in the crowd. And he's going to show up the next day. It's not that he was personally present at the time. That's not a contradiction at all. Only the most hair-splitting, logic-chopping, leftist, God-hating, Christ-hating liberal would say something like that. Gosh, I sound like a... Bob Jones are by saying that. But it's true. There's, there's, no, there's no possibility of contradiction here. Now, John the Baptist said that, that the one coming after him, John the Baptist, was not worthy to untie his sandal strap. Now, a disciple could do all kinds of things for their masters, according to my NIV study Bible. They could do all kinds of things. But loosing the sandal thongs was expressly forbidden because that job was reserved for slaves. Why? Because if you think about it, in that dusty climate, they're walking all on the, you know, the garbage all over the streets and everything. The, sh the sandals were nasty. They were dirty. So that job was considered so low that only a slave could do it. And I imagine the slave would take the sandals and wash them, dump, dip them in water or something and wash them so they could have clean sandals when they left. So this was a metaphor that anybody in Jewish society would have understood. He says, I am just a slave. I'm not even worthy to be a slave to the Messiah. Not only am I not worthy to be his disciple, not only am I not worthy to be the Messiah himself or his disciple, I'm not worthy to be that. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. So guys, this is a little bit exaggeration here. I guess Hebrew hyperbole. He's really making it clear. I am not the Messiah. He's coming. John 1, verse 28. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, Bethany across the Jordan, I've got it just about, what, maybe five miles from where the Jordan River uh, runs into the north end of the Dead Sea. 
right there on that plain right across from the Jordan River. But there's a question mark on it. This is in my BibleAtlas.org map. And as I told you earlier, D.A. Carson thinks he was baptizing way up the, uh, up the Jordan Valley, up to the Galilee, and then take a right and go east for several miles and you end up in Batania. It doesn't really matter. We do need to distinguish that Bethany across the Jordan is not Bethany on the side of the Mount of Olives, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. That's where Mary and Martha lived and Lazarus, who was resurrected, lived. And then another home, not in Mary's home, not Mary and Martha and Lazarus's home, but another home that's where Simon the leper lived. Two individuals who show up in the gospel narratives. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. In our next audio, we will take up at least verses 29 through 34, where John identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He's already predicted in this audio that he was not the Messiah. In the next audio, he's going to say, now I'm going to show you who the Messiah really is. Hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you listen to the next one.